All right, Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, we pick up where we left off last week. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, last, uh, our last time together. Uh, those tw- so we started out talking about these twin convictions, um, uh, having the importance of having a high view of God and also having a low view of man, um, uh, ha- having a, a view of God uh, that He gives to us in Scripture, a, a view of His glory and His holiness, um, uh, a view of God that guards the church against uh, pragmatism and guard- guards even our own lives as believers against uh, sin and discouragement. And then on the other hand, that low view of man recognizing uh, our, our, our sinfulness and, and how that helps us. Um, it, it helps us in our relationships uh, with others. Uh, it helps us to deal uh, when we uh, find out about the, uh, the failure of other people that we may uh, look up to. It helps us uh, even with people in our own lives that mistreat us or lie about us or um, are ungrateful uh, for what we've done or in some way offend us. It helps us to not Uh, overreact in those uh, situations. Not that we don't take sin seriously, uh, but it just helps us to manage our expectations and to not allow those types of things when they do happen, and they will happen. uh, It guards us against sort of an overreaction or even a devastation, uh, not being destroyed in our Christian lives when other people sin, because people sin. Uh, We sin, and and even it, it helps us to understand and, and to uh, deal with that in our, in our own hearts when we sin, uh, not to sink into absolute despair, but to just uh, not, not to take a bad decision and make another bad decision, but to recognize our sin, humble ourselves, repent, trust in the Lord. Uh, so there's a, a right way to respond. Um, so we looked at that. We got, we got into a discussion about wisdom because Solomon has corrected a, an abuse of wisdom, a misuse of wisdom that we pointed out a few weeks ago regarding this, uh, t- this, this idea of taking proverbial principles, proverbial wisdom in Scripture about uh, God's, um, g- the fact that God generally blesses the righteous and generally clobbers or punishes the wicked, but that's not always the case. And so we address this abuse of wisdom of sort of trying to take God's principles um, that he does bless obedience and that he does deal with disobedience, but trying to sort of force God into a corner and say, Lord, if, if this person in my life is disobeying you, then you have to deal with them right now. I mean, you have to deal with them and you have to deal with them in this way. And on the flip side, abusing wisdom by somehow thinking that if we just live righteous enough that we can avoid adversity, that we can avoid affliction in our life. And so uh, Solomon has, has sort of uh, rebuked that abuse of wisdom. Um, there are those general princ- principles in Scripture of God blessing the righteous and punishing the wicked, but, but, the, but, but we should never take those general principles and make them absolute uh, principles. So uh, he, he's getting at this, he's ta- been talking about sin, he's talking about wisdom. I think he might be concerned that we are developing maybe even a negative uh, view of wisdom because he's talked about his own frustrations and his own pursuit of wisdom. So he may be attempting in these verses we'll look at this morning to, to sort of correct that and, and to say, listen, wisdom is not really the problem, the problem is sin. But the problem is our sinful hearts, uh, and wisdom does have its limitations. And so Solomon was big on wisdom. He wants us to know that. He wants us to know that wisdom is a good thing. And so beginning here uh, in verse 19, down through the end of this chapter, he gives us four descriptions of wisdom, and we looked at the first of them uh, last Sunday. And the first one was simply that the wisdom of God is a good governor, He says in verse 19, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And so he gives us a very simple illustration. He he sort of imagines a city that has uh, has 10 uh, sort of governed by a council of 10 uh, leaders and says that a, a wise person has the strength of 
a well-governed city because wisdom is a governor. It, 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 it governs our wills. It governs our emotions, our thoughts, our speech, our actions. Uh, wisdom gives to us general principles that encourage a high view of God and encourage a low view of man. And wisdom gives us life, life-altering principles, and he even brings up one of these, and, and, and we'll touch on a, a couple of others. But he gives us in verse 20 a very simple principle that is important for us to factor into life under the sun if we're to live wisely, and that is the, the, the issue of uh, this, the reality that sin touches everything and everyone. He says in verse 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So he just says, even for those of us who are in Christ, um, we are saved sinners, but we are sinners nonetheless. Uh, nonetheless. So uh, no righteous man is perfect. We do live righteously. I mean, if we are in Christ, we do live righteously, but we do not continually do good. Uh, that won't be we see the Lord face to face. And so he's just saying that's important to factor that into your life because it makes a huge difference in your relationships with other people. It makes a huge difference in the way that you respond when you are sinned against. It makes a big difference in how you respond when you yourself uh, sin. So the point here is that we need to accept the fact that we are all sinners and need to learn to, to deal with people uh, as they are. And he gives us then a practical example of this in verse 21. Also, he says, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. And so he just gives us something that we can, an example of something we can all uh, identify with. Um, we've all been talked about at some point. <laughs> we have heard people talking negatively about us or we've been told about people talking negatively about us and normally we respond with shock, right, when we find that out. We're, we're, we're shocked uh, over it. We're, sometimes we are devastated by it. We get angered by it. But wisdom here keeps us on the right track and, and governs our response to that. And, and so wisdom gives us, and we looked at these, there's three sort of simple, simple truths. One was to, that we need to recognize the folly of eavesdropping. Um, uh, we mentioned Charles Bridges here, his quote, Listeners standing upon the tiptoe of suspicion seldom hear good about themselves. So if you want to hear everything that's going on, <laughs> you're probably going to eventually hear something said that, is, uh, that, that paints you in a negative light. So be careful about the foolishness of, of that. Uh, the second truth we mentioned was if someone is talking about you not to, to panic, uh, not to lash out in, in anger uh, because you feel betrayed, um, not to have a pick-up-your-ball-and-go-home attitude. Uh, um, <clears throat> so just being patient, uh, not overreacting, not tolerating sin, but being patient because we know that we, we are sinners and we expect sinners to sin. Uh, Spurgeon told his students that ministers should have one blind eye and one deaf ear. So uh, that is what wisdom does. Wisdom learns to not be overly concerned about what other people say. Okay? The third truth we, we ended with was, re, was to remember. We always need to remember, remember that we are sinners too. Our words are not always loving. Our words are not always kind. We've spoken out of frustration. We've spoken without knowing all the facts about a situation. We've jumped to conclusions. We've gone on the offensive when we've been attacked by others. But wisdom says that if you are aware of your own sinfulness, you will more easily shrug off the foolish and unkind remarks of others. So consider wisdom. Let your own sinful words remind you not to take what other people say too much to heart. Uh, but make allowances for them by offering them the same grace when people say things against you, offering them the same grace that you yourself are in need of so often. Okay? So wisdom is a good governor. We need God's sanctifying grace that will bring with it the strength of wisdom to know that at times what to hear and what not to hear, what to listen to, what to tune out, 
what to say and, and, and how to speak. Uh, it regulates us in that sense. It's a filter for us, filtering our thoughts and, and regulating our lives. So it's a good governor. Uh, we're going to look at these three others um, here with the rest of our time. The second description he gives to us is that wisdom is a profound mystery. Wisdom is a profound mystery. Uh, now, as we've seen many times throughout uh, our study of this book, Solomon, Solomon was a man that had dedicated his whole life to the pursuit of wisdom, uh, to the pursuit of discovering the meaning of life. Uh, even in this chapter alone, Solomon has mentioned his, his quest and some of the findings, such as the value of a good reputation. Uh, we saw this earlier in the chapter, the certainty of death. Uh, and the importance of being prepared to face death rightly, uh, the advantage of a rebuke over the song of fools, that it's, that's, that's a, a good thing to be reproved uh, and to not always be commended, to not always be uh, built up by others. Sometimes that's a, that's a trap. Uh, the value of self-restraint as well as the value of contentment uh, and the advantages of wisdom over money. Back in chapter uh, 1... Verse 13, Solomon said, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven, and it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So no one, no one made a more earnest, more serious attempt to understand life than Solomon did. Uh, he, he literally tried everything. Okay, he tried everything, but at the end of all of that, all of those experiences and all of those observations and, and all of that questioning, Solomon had to admit that he fell short in his search. So he says here, verse 23, I tested all of this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it. Uh, Derek Kidner describes these verses as, quote, the epitaph of every philosopher. Um, so many questions that Solomon sought to find out about life under the sun, but time and time again, Solomon hit a wall. Uh, he, was, he was confronted time and time again that God is the only one who is all wise. So, he kept trying to pursue wisdom, but he, he would come to this point where he, his, his knowledge, there were, there were limitations put on how much he could learn and know, and that was intentional. God did that. God restricted that, uh, and we've talked about God's purposes in, in doing that at times. But Solomon had to admit that, that no person has the capacity to fully know and understand God's plan and God's program. Even, even Solomon's, because he had not just a desire to learn, but he had, he had a God-given wisdom, right? I mean, he asked for it. God gave it to him. But even that God-given wisdom uh, had its limits. So with, with all of his wisdom, Solomon could not understand all that exists. He couldn't understand all about how God manages his creation or what purpose God always has in mind, and in this context, again, we said that there's sort of two themes going on through the end of chapter 7. One of them is this issue of wisdom, but it's sort of combined with this issue of, of sin, the, 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 the problem of sin. And so you think about this. This was one of the mysteries. This is one of those things that Solomon, as he sought to, to learn and understand everything there is to know about life, one of the things that he... he he gained a certain amount of understanding about, but at some point, his, it just he hit another wall. Was in this issue of of sin, the problem of sin. Uh, what happened at the beginning that affects the present? Uh, Solomon could have been referring back to Genesis three. You have to keep in mind that Solomon would have had access to that. So uh, the the those books of Moses that would have been. Uh, material. I mean, that, that would have been, and all this research and all this understanding and all this observation, I mean, Solomon would have clearly have taken advantage of the Old Testament scriptures that would have been available at that particular time. 
So he would have been able to see and to read about the, the account of Genesis 3. So you can imagine reading that. Now, see, we read that differently because we read that, but we have the whole Bible, right? So we have Genesis 3, but then we have this full revelation. We have explanation of Genesis 3. We have New Testament writers talking about Old Testament history and giving us the theological implications of it. Solomon Solomon would not have had that. So imagine reading through those chapters of Genesis, but not having all of that additional revelation. You wonder, well, what what did Solomon understand? Um, What exactly did happen back in the garden? Uh, What about this existence of evil? How did we get to be so bad? How How do people do do some of the horrible things that they do? Why are we so selfish and greedy and proud and hateful and treacherous? Solomon couldn't figure out all there is to know about the existence and the workings of evil in the world in the same way that he couldn't figure out everything there was to know about suffering or injustice or death in the future. Uh, He would have had the book of Genesis to study and what it says about sin in the world but he wouldn't have had the Apostle Paul telling him about all of those theological uh, implications and explanations. So he may have struggled to know uh, what was later explained about the fall of Adam and Eve and, and those implications of their disobedience for their own lives as well as for the whole human race. He, he, could have understand, he, he could have understood, I believe, some things, many things, but there would have been those certain things that would have been impenetrable to him. Uh, I mean, you could say this way. Solomon, he's, he's trying to figure out life. He's, he's running into a dead end there. He's trying to figure out about even, even evil and, and some of these questions that even the, to this day philosophers are kicking around and trying to answer. And even we, with, our, with what we know about the Bible, we can't answer every single question, right? We just sometimes have to state what the Scriptures say, but we don't even know how it all fits together. And then this issue of, of even our own hearts. I mean, think about this at a basic level. Solomon didn't even understand himself. <laughs> Sometimes people will say that, right? No one understands me. No one gets me, as, which implying that they understand themselves. <clears throat> but that's, that's in fact that there's, if there's one person that you do not fully know, it's you. <laughs> I mean, we do not understand everything about what we do, why we do it, our motives, why we do the things that we do, all the things that we say, why we feel the things that we feel. So even with all of the revelation that we have as New Testament believers, even we don't understand all of these mysteries. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just sort of give up in despair? Well, that's one option. That would probably not a very good one. Uh, the better alternative would be for us to admit that we don't have all the answers but believe that God still does. That's wisdom. Wisdom just says, listen, there's some limitations in our understanding, but we do believe that God knows all things. And, and we, can, we can wait for whatever wisdom that God provides. You could say this way, to know our limits and to know <clears throat> that the knowledge, to know that... Uh, to know the knowledge of wisdom's limits, <clears throat> that itself is part of wisdom. To know the limitations of wisdom is a part of wisdom. That is to say that the more that we learn and discover, and you, you could attest to this, the more that we learn and discover, the more we realize how little we know. And whatever wisdom we gain, we learn it, it comes from God. I mean, if, if we didn't have God giving it to us, there's no way that we could figure this thing out. I mean, think about the outlandish conclusions that the world comes to. <clears throat> They're looking at some of the same things, experiencing some of the same things we are. But apart from God giving them wisdom, crazy ideas, right? I mean, like, I mean, we have college, we have Ph.D. university professors teaching semester-long classes on things like trying to convince students that we are all just people within a video game. I mean, this is going on at the university level, that that's, that's their philosophy of life, that we're actually in a video game right now and that someone's playing the game and that we are the people just like, you know, 
and somebody's doing this, right? And we're all just like little characters in the video game. They'll teach a whole semester of that. So they're, they're looking at evil. They're looking at it, it, things going on in life. Where does all this stuff come from? So wisdom comes from God. And, and the more sometimes that we try to understand these things, and rather than recognizing it, the, the limitations that God has placed upon us and that driving us to worship God and to trust Him, that He's the one who knows all things, sometimes like Solomon just kept, kept churning and kept churning, trying to discover, trying to discover, trying to understand, and, and not realizing until much later, because this book's written towards the end of his life, that with the wisdom of God is a profound mystery. So Solomon, he keeps searching. He keeps trying to understand the difference between a, the wise way and the foolish way to live. He did discover some things, which he, again, goes on to, to share with us. Uh, he does this, in fact, in the very next verse, with a, really in a, in a negative tone. I'm going to present it in a little bit more of a positive, uh, sort of a positive perspective. And that is to say this, that wisdom is also a lifesaver. Wisdom is a lifesaver. Verse 25, he says, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. He it literally says, I, I, I in my heart looked around. That's what it says in the Hebrew. We looked around. My, me and my heart, we, we, took, we took a look to know, to investigate, to seek, to search out the meaning of like, life, uh, to, to seek knowledge even about the wickedness and the delusion of foolishness. He, he sought counsel from other people. He talked to other people, men and women. He held dialogues with scholars and people on the street, pulled together all the information that he could. And again, he's already shared some of these conclusions. For instance, back in chapter 3, verse 11, he said, and he, he has made, speaking of God, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Uh, he says something very similar in, in this chapter, verse 14, chapter 7. In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that men will not discover anything that will be after him. And here he says, and this is one of, again, his conclusions, verse 26, and I discovered, so in this, in this process of trying to seek and understand life. He says, And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman. Stop right there. (laughs) I discovered more bitter than death, the woman. Sounds pretty frightening, doesn't it? More bitter than death. I mean, it's it's hard to say something's worse than death, more bitter than death. Um, so what I've done is sort of flip that around because he's talking about this bitterness and this path to death and said, if we turn it in a more positive way, we say, wisdom will save your life from this woman, okay? What is her name? Who is this woman? Her name is Folly. Uh, turn over to Proverbs 8, Proverbs 8, because uh, there's a lot of interpretations. <laughs> in fact, chapter 7, we've already hit this a couple times. Of all the chapters in Ecclesiastes, this may be the one that there's just, there's a lot of uh, discussion about what Solomon's getting at in some of these verses. Uh, when you f- first read them, they, wow, that, that's, that's shocking or you know, wow, that doesn't, that doesn't seem consistent with this other thing that Solomon has said in other places. So who is this woman? Uh, Proverbs 8, you may remember that beginning there in verse 1, wisdom is personified as a woman. Okay, verse 1, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the door, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. 
Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will, will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Uh, drop down to verse 33. It says, heed, heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he, finds, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor, favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Now, go on to right into chapter 9. Um, continues there, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has honed out her seven pillars. She's prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. So she's personified. It's, 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 she's this woman. She's this woman and she's in a, in a place where she can be seen and heard and she's crying out to these naive, simple-minded people and saying, Let's listen to what I'm saying. You listen to me, you'll find life. You reject what I'm saying, you'll find death. But notice, it's not just wisdom that is personified as a woman. There in chapter 9, look it down in verse 13. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says... Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So one of the things that's interesting when you read these about these two women, the, 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 the woman wisdom and the woman folly, is that the second woman says the same thing as the first one. <laughs> You'll notice it in chapter, uh, chapter 9 there in verse 4, the wise woman, and then down in verse 16, they say the exact same words. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. So what we have here is we have, and this is just a, a way to think about the world that we live in. There are two voices. <laughs> there are two competing forms of counsel. There are two competing forms of of advice, two people, two women are calling. There is wisdom that is crying out, calling out to us. Come here, listen, and you'll find life. And you have folly and foolishness that's also crying out the same thing. Hey, you naive, you simple. Turn in here and listen. But but then what she says, <laughs> stolen water is sweet, right? Bread eaten in, eaten in secret is pleasant. So they're both calling out. And Solomon says, I think here in, in Ecclesiastes 7, 26, that, is, that, as, that as he looked around attempting to find out some things about evil, he discovered this, that more bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So Solomon says, listen, if you decide to pay attention to and to go after folly, I will tell you where that leads. Okay? This is good advice, folks. Okay? I'm going to tell you. Now, we go on. If you go into the next few chapters, or actually if you go back in, in, into Proverbs a little bit further, uh, chapters 2, chapters 5, chapter 6, there is a specific example of folly. There is this strange woman mentioned there. And, of course, we know that Solomon went down those roads, right? He went down those roads of, of, of immoral living. But I just think that what Solomon's getting at in Ecclesiastes is bigger than that. 
where most commentators go is they go immediately to the fact that Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines, okay? He had a woman problem, okay? It wasn't like a singular woman, okay? There were lots of women, but I think the reference in Ecclesiastes 7 isn't just about sexual immorality. I think that it's a much bigger bigger category. It's just folly in general. Now, in his life, that was manifested through that immorality, but guess what? It was manifested in a lot of ways in his life. But here's what he says, and I think this is the general principle that he's getting at is if you go down that road and you listen to folly, it is painful, (laughs) It is bitter. In fact, he just, listen to the way he describes this. If you go after folly, it will lead to snares. Snares. Which is a term that was used to describe, uh, in some cases, a trap or a snare uh, that a fowler would use to lay, that he would lay out for a bird to, to trap and catch a bird. But Solomon uses this term somewhere else, and he uses it in Ecclesiastes. So flip over to Ecclesiastes 9. Uh, verse 14, this term for snares, Solomon uses this later, and we'll get there eventually, but he says in Ecclesiastes 9.14, There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. Okay, siege works. Anybody, what, what, any other translations, other terms there? You guys have besides siege works? All of us, everybody's got siege works? Okay, it's got snares, because that, that's the same term. Okay, so your translation may have the term snares, but this was a term that was used to describe all of the weaponry and all of the devices that were used to destroy the defenses of a city. Armies would construct platforms, they would construct towers around and above the city walls of a city under siege, which would allow the besieging army to shoot arrows down into the city. So you had these cities that were surrounded by a wall, and what you had is the the uh, attacking army would come and they would build up these uh, ramps and build up these platforms so that they could get up high enough at least level with the wall, if not higher than the wall, so that they could shoot arrows down into the city. So ramps were built up to the city walls, allowing soldiers to attack the walls and to shoot fire arrows and other weapons into the city. Scaling ladders lifted armies over the walls into the city. Battering rams were used to destroy the city gates. Fires at the base of the walls weakened the sandstone bricks. Tunnels were dug under the walls to further weaken the walls. And once the population's emotions were drained and its supplies were exhausted, the city would inevitably fall. What does that tell us about folly? <laughs> what does that tell you about folly? It tells me, for one thing, folly is crafty, okay? Folly will come at you from, I mean, if folly wrote a book, it would be 101 ways to besiege a soul, right? I mean, because that's, it, this isn't just some, don't get the impression it's sort of like folly just lays a trap out there, And, you know, you might, perhaps if you happen to go that way, you might actually fall into the snare. Think of this as folly, as an an army that is coming. And you have a wall (laughs) around your life and your soul, but don't think that folly is going to just build a ramp, and if the ramp doesn't work, folly is going to go home. Don't think that if folly starts to dig a tunnel and realizes, up, can't, there's something there we can't penetrate. I guess we have to give up. Folly doesn't give up that easy. Folly will come at you a hundred different ways. It will shoot arrows. It will dig tunnels. It will build ramps and platforms. It will use things to crash the gate down if possible. And so Solomon's saying, this is what I learned. I went down that road of folly, and I learned it's a snare. It's, it's a trap, and even more, it is, it is constantly there. And that is the picture we get in Proverbs 9, right? Folly is standing there constantly crying out to the naive, turn in here. It's not like Folly just walks out on the front porch and says, hey, listen up, and then if nobody turns around, then Folly goes back inside and stays inside for a week. Doesn't do that. It just comes at you a different way. 
Then Solomon says this, her heart is like nets, which is a term for dragnet, uh, which was a net that's, the, the, and they do this even today, where they draw a net across the bottom. You've got basically a, a long net. That they put weights in the bottom of the net that sink down to the bottom of a river or a pond. And then at the top of the net, they put floats. And you've got two guys, and they basically start on one side of the pond, and they just slowly do this, just walk across, <laughs> Right? And then eventually they get to the other side and everything, all right, all the fish are in, in the net. Uh, they call it, I think, sane, saning or sane fishing, I think is the term they use for it now. Uh, what does that teach you about folly? I imagine a fish. Here's what I envision. I envision a fish, okay, on this side, and all of a sudden there's this net, and the net gets a little close, and he's kind of trying to figure out what that thing is right there, and so he's... You know, I'm going to go over here and, right? And then a, then a few minutes later, that, what is this thing again? <laughs> okay, what's the deception, though, of that? The deception is that there's plenty of room. I, I still got plenty. I got all this pond out here, right? But what happens over time? That real estate gets smaller, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, it's kind of crowded. There's a lot of fish. <laughs> I mean, it's like everybody's getting kind of close, you know, like, hey, Charlie, I haven't seen you in a while, you know. And, and then all of a sudden it gets really cramped, and then eventually there's nowhere to go. I mean, that, that's the, it, the imagery here is that it's inevitable. If you go down that trail of folly, there is no escape. And you will tell yourself because you have room to play, right? You have room to move. You will tell yourself that you're still free, Right? But you're not free. It, it, it's just, it, just, it just hasn't caught up with you yet, right? It's only a matter of time and you're going to be caught. And then Solomon says this, her hands are chains. More likely, the, you could say uh, these were bonds or, or for the wrist or ankles, usually made of brass or iron. Again, just describing the, ens- the entanglement of it, the entanglement and the ens- enslaving nature of, of folly. This is folly. And the only way to escape her, he says, is to be pleasing to God, which is just another way of saying to fear God. Because those are sort of two sides of the same coin. Because fearing God is, is living and standing in awe of, of God and who He is and, and, and living in a constant mode of desiring in everything that we do not to offend God but to please Him. So it's pleasing him, it's, it's, it's fearing him, it's, it's driving us back to a high view of God and a low view of man, right? It's just saying that the only way to escape that result of chains, snares, and nets is to have a high view of God and to distrust yourself, right? It's greater dependence on God, less, less self-reliance, more trust in God less trusting in your own heart and in your own flesh. So Solomon's making the point here that there are, there are a lot of impenetrable things about evil, but this much is very clear. We may not understand all the things that go on, and we may not be able to, be able to, to explain everything about evil, but this thing is absolutely crystal clear. Folly leads to destruction devastation. And so Solomon says, don't toy with it. Don't even, don't even get around the fringes of it. Don't get around the fringes of death and bitterness. And listen to wisdom. Pay attention to wisdom. She will save your life. She will deliver you. So take it from Solomon who learned the hard way, right? A man who was hungry for power, who had who was woman crazy, made pitiful, terrible decisions in regard to, to women and his relationships, uh, a man that, that uh, in, in many ways allowed the love of money to creep in to his life. Take it from him. Wisdom is a lifesaver. 
Wisdom is a lifesaver. And then he ends with this. Wisdom is a rare find. It is a rare find. Not in the sense that wisdom is hard to find, but it's hard to find people living wisely. (laughs) People that actually understand wisdom and who are heeding these principles, you look out into the world, it's one in, well, what does he say? It's as rare as a politician who keeps his campaign promises, right? Verse 27, Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Uh, Let me, and I don't like to read long, but I want to read this to you. This is from uh, Zach Eswine, his book, Recovering Eden. Um, This is what he has to say. I think it's a great description. There's a lot of well, again, this, people go are all over the place about what is Solomon demeaning women? Is he saying, I only know one guy in a thousand, but man, I have yet to find a woman, okay? <laughs> I mean, is he, is he saying it like that? Well, that doesn't seem to, to jibe with all the things that he says commendable about. I mean, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. He commends women all throughout Proverbs. Um, it just doesn't seem to go line up with other statements he's made, but this is, I think, a, an, ex, an excellent explanation. So it's worth... It's worth, I think, just reading it to you. He says, Poetically, the preacher is using a metaphor to state that out of a group of 2,000 men and women, only one person would likely possess the contemplative wisdom and the true kind of joy that we were created to experience. And yet, even that person is a sinner. Verse 20. At this point, what Solomon says makes sense. But why does he identify the person as a man and suggest plainly that if he only finds one man that is wise, he has not found one woman in that same crowd? After all, the preacher has made the beauty and dignity of women clear elsewhere in his message. The sage tradition in which Solomon speaks readily commends and identifies the ready existence and blessing of wise women. Therefore, two interpretations seem probable. One, we simply do not know how to rightly interpret Solomon's poetry. Earlier cultures agreed with the seeming disparagement toward women. Our culture disagrees with the seeming disparagement toward women. Perhaps we confess our, cul- our cultural noise. We state what we know for sure that it cannot mean what it cannot mean, and we stop there. Recognize the limits of what seems fuzzy to us and wait upon God for the sentence that troubles us and, and shouldn't or doesn't trouble us and should. Two, so this is the other option, We take Solomon seriously when he tells us about his personal experience. Solomon had firsthand experience with foolish men, and on occasion he met a wise man, such as Nathan the prophet. But Solomon's choice of women was unfortunate. He surrounded himself not with women of the covenant for whom the fear of God anchored their heart and pursuit of life. Instead, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines in his royal harem, unbelieving women who worshipped foreign gods and who possessed little access to the wisdom found in the God of Israel. If the preacher is testifying to what he learned after his downfall, then it makes sense why this section about sex, men, and women possesses a more passionate use of metaphor than perhaps other sections in his message. Similarly, in a male-dominated society in which the education of women depended upon upright men, women found themselves at a terrible disadvantage. The preacher implies this disadvantage. When only one out of a thousand is found to possess wisdom, those who must depend upon others for their education are left to learn by perusing libraries of folly. If so, Solomon's remarks are sadly factual rather than sarcastically disparaging. Impoverished women exist in large part because of the fault of men in a society of male-dominated foolishness. Because of this, his point remains regarding the human condition. Wise humanity describes a rare thing. Either way, the point Solomon makes is that uprightness and wisdom reflect the character of God, but we are hard-pressed to find one human being who shows us this fact, and even the one that we might find is still a sinner. So, I think that's a good good explanation of, of, of what he's saying there. And then he finishes with this, kind of ties this in, verse 29. Behold, I have found, this is in your Bible, verse 29. 
I'm out of the quote now from S1. <laughs> Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Perhaps Solomon is thinking again about Genesis, the account in Genesis 3 and the fall of man. He isn't sure and can't understand everything about what is going on there. He's, he's not sure that he can penetrate all that is going on behind the scenes. But this much he does know that God made man upright and that man plunged himself into sin. So Solomon has taken an, a very strong stance in Ecclesiastes regarding the sovereignty of God. But the one thing that Solomon has refused to do in Ecclesiastes is to blame God for sins. God made man upright, straight, without deviation, without twists or distortions. We know this because in Genesis 1.31, after God created man, he said that he saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But you keep reading, and you get to chapter 3, and you find what you find there is that man sought out his own plans and devices. And then you keep reading, and you find just a chapter later in Genesis 4, verse 8, that Cain told his brother, Abel, and it came about that when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, this is the account and Solomon's reading this, we, just six chapters in. I mean, we were at, and God made this and it was very good, and then we're just in chapter 6 and we have this in verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So this word, interestingly, in Genesis 6, 5, when it says every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, that term there for thoughts, it's, it shares the same root as the word devices in Ecclesiastes 7.29. It speaks about the reasons and the imaginations of man's mind to be ingenious and, and creative in order to invent something or to come up with something. That is to say, God made man upright, but in Genesis 3 and ever since, man has been inventing evil thinking up new forms of evil, evil and perfecting old forms of evil. This is what man does. He engineers evil. He wearies himself thinking of ways to be evil because he is quarreling with God, but at the same time trying to find soul satisfaction. <laughs> so man is out there in his heart and mind. He rejects God's sovereignty, but he's still on the hunt for satisfaction. And so he keeps inventing, he keeps trying these different things, but because he doesn't trust in God, then everything he invents and does is wicked, right? He seeks out new ways of rebelling against God, and that is why in Romans chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul describes fallen men and, and, fallen men and women as those who are inventors of evil. So whatever we're trying to understand about evil, one thing is sure, God is not to blame for sin. And Solomon affirms what all of Scripture teaches, that God is sovereign, but man rightly and fully bears the just blame for abandoning his original state. So you can pursue wisdom with all your vigor. You can use every resource, but you will never find the answer to life. Not if you're disputing with God. Not if you're, 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 you're resisting his power and his control, his sovereignty. If you're not acknowledging a high view of God, if you're disputing with God and yet you're trying to find how your soul can be satisfied, Solomon just says, it's, it's going to escape you. You won't discover it. You will be left without an explanation. On the other hand, you can pursue excessive wickedness, he says. Excessive madness and folly. You can cross every line and boundary, but your disgruntled complaint against God's sovereignty will leave you defenseless against the woman folly. You'll have no defenses against her. You will be entangled, tied up, bound by a chain, wrapped in a net. Because when you are disputing with God, the woman of folly does not have to be very savvy <laughs> to entrap you when you're disputing against God. 
you will fall for her every time. But when you fear God, you find both soul satisfaction and enough wisdom to live life successfully under the sun. You can embrace and come out of adversity. You can embrace times of prosperity and not be duped. Whatever comes, you will learn to embrace it and honor the Lord in it. From the fall to the present, people have turned away from God and away from wisdom. People pervert the right way of God. They, they bend that which God has created straight, which is ironic because no human being, he says in verse 13, can straighten out what God has bent. So the trouble in this world is not with God, Solomon says, it's with man. The trouble is that man will not heed the wisdom of God in the word of God. Man keeps trying to circumvent what God has said and keeps trying to find the richness of life apart from the guidelines that God has established. So we need the wisdom of God. We need it desperately. It is a good governor for us. Um, It gives us strength to avoid the pitfalls of gullibility. It helps us to not take seriously every word of lavish praise. It gives us the strength to resist criticism, to handle life with rare objectivity and rare stability. It is a profound mystery. It is a lifesaver, and it is a rare find. There are very few in the world that fear God and avoid the foolish woman. So if you're looking for both wisdom and satisfaction, right? You have it here, right? The word, this is the word inscripturated, right? What does Psalm 19 tell us? Psalm 19 tells us the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, right? And he goes on to say it's more desirable than gold. So we have the inscripturated word. If we're looking for both wisdom and satisfaction, and it's in Christ, the incarnate word, right? Colossians tells us Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you're looking for wisdom and you're looking for soul satisfaction. You have it here. And then what does this reveal to us, right? This is how we come to know the incarnate word, right? This is, this is everything we know about Christ. We know from this, okay? So we need the wisdom of God. Um, difficult section, but hopefully we... we uh, Uh, We're faithful to it. So we will pick up uh, in chapter 8, and we'll be moving on, okay?